Plain Spoken, biotech and medtech interviews with ENCODE Ideas. My name is Hogan Mullally. I'm a partner at ENCODE. After our last podcast, an interview with George Haywood, a well-known investor in small cap healthcare names, where we discussed synaptogenics and Petros, we received a ton of positive feedback. So we thought we'd follow up with another investor interview. So we asked a friend of Encode Ideas, Brian Finn, who runs Findale Capital, if he would be willing to come onto the podcast to discuss a few of his favorite healthcare names. Brian was good enough to oblige us. So today we're going to be talking about two of the names that he particularly likes, Liquidia and ProQR. Brian's had a very successful career on the buy side with time spent at Deutsche Bank Capital Management, Force Capital, and most recently at Mac Capital before in 2019 forming Findel. And as you'll hear from Brian, his returns have been excellent at Findel. Before transitioning to my interview with Brian, I would just like to highlight that these podcasts, these interviews are for entertainment purposes only. These are not to be considered financial advice. Please consult your financial advisor before making any decisions on investing in any of the securities we discuss in the podcast. And with that, I'll transition to my interview with Brian Finn. I'd like to welcome Brian Finn to the podcast. Brian, tell us a little bit about Findel Capital. Thank you guys for having me. So I run Findel Capital Partners. We focus on small cap equities. We're you know relatively sector agnostic. We do spend a lot of time in healthcare. Our basic strategy or approach has been to find situations where there's been a behavioral or, or technical factor that's driven some sort of dislocation. You know, typically a sell-off because we're largely long and focusing on those situations and trying to see if we can we can analyze them through one to two key investing factors and then running all of our diligence on the one to two things that we think will actually drive the story going forward and if we if we find that you know we can solve those one to two things and we we have a, a thesis where we're you know markedly different from where the the market's currently valuing that particular equity then we we put on a position so we're looking for situations where there's a really skewed risk reward, and those often happen to be in healthcare. And this is an approach that's worked that's worked very well. You know, we have a managed account track record since 2016. Um, the limited partnership was started in 2019. The fund has returned, you know, almost 4x uh, the Russell during the the entirety of the track record, and we're up over 60 million at the moment in AUM. After starting the the limited partnership with you know the low the low teens, um, so you know we're we're looking at uh, a lot of different small cap names, and you know today we'll discuss uh, Liquidia, LQDA, and ProQR, PRQR. Maybe before we jump into Liquidia and ProQR, can you maybe share some previous healthcare successes you've had as an investor? Yeah. So one name we were publicly associated with, you know, that we wrote up on in various uh, forums and, you know, spent a lot of time and had a very concentrated position was, was my medics, which was the name we got involved in in uh, mid 2019. 
And that was a company that made a wound care product that had had a bunch of technical and behavioral factors that had driven a very big dislocation in the share price. The stock had been, uh, the company was rather accused by various short sellers of all sorts of malfeasance and the stock fell from the teens down to the, the low single digits. And we, you know, started to look at it after it had been delisted and you know, basically didn't have a management team. So that's the type of situation that we're attracted to where you have a big dislocation. You know, there's a lot of opaqueness that you can try to un- resolve through, through deep research. In the case in, of Mimetics, you know, what we figured out was that these guys really did have a compelling product despite what the shorts were claiming and that they were still generating a lot of revenue from that product, even though it was hard to tell how much revenue they had given their financials had been removed and they weren't reporting any financials. So we found some some data sets to show what they were currently producing as far as revenue and then understanding kind of how they were going to get past some of their, their, their legal issues that had arisen due to some revenue shifting activity of the prior management team. So once we were able to gain a fair amount of confidence on those different fronts, and had some strength in the conviction that they were going to be able to undergo a series of catalysts to uh, to, to cure themselves of some of these issues. We put on the the trade, and and the stock re-rated from you know the high twos to at one point about fifteen sixteen. Um, it's since come back down a bit, but you know that's the type of situation that we're we're looking for uh, a stock that has been extremely dislocated where we can understand what causes the dislocation and, you know, where there's some sort of multi-bagger return potential. Well, I certainly do recall uh, Mimetics being a very topical name a few years back. And as you highlight, the short sellers certainly had a heyday uh, with it for a period of time. But let's transition now to the the first of the two names we're going to discuss today, uh, Liquidia. So how did this name first come to be on your radar? So, you know, as mentioned, we're, we're, we're screening for ideas where unusual things have happened. In the case of Liquidia, last year, they had received uh, an inbound licensing offer, and it wasn't clear from whom. And the stock uh, rallied a bit. And upon future, upon some, some subsequent digging, it was clear that this licensing offer, uh, you know, probably represented, you know, at least, uh, you know, $10 in, in in net present value to the company and the stock was trading around four to five. So I thought it was an interesting situation to, to, to start to put on a position. The licensing offer ended up not being accepted, but it did show to me that there was at least some entity here and they didn't disclose who the, the entity was that put in the offer, but it seemed likely that it was United Therapeutics, that there was a third party here that, that thought there was a lot of value in in Liquidia, but at the time, you know, the, the licensing offer didn't come to fruition. And so, you know, we ended up uh, with the stock trading back down to, to $3 from $4. But it seemed like the story wasn't going to be over there, that, that these guys had, you know, subsequent catalysts. They had a, a Padufa and they had uh, the ability to get past some litigation issues, which we'll discuss in a bit. But it became interesting from that, that standpoint. Um, and that's when it began digging into it and understanding kind of what these guys did um, and understanding the pulmonary hypertension space in general, uh, which you know, I'll shorten that to, to PAH, PAH, but that that is the, the, the disease category that these guys are, are focused on. And, you know, you really only had 
Liquidia and Mankind who were creating uh, inhaler products that were going to address the uh, the inhaled space within this, this disease category. You mentioned United, and obviously, Liquidia's story is extremely intertwined with that of United. But perhaps we can take a step back and you can explain to us the history of United uh, as it relates to the pulmonary arterial hypertension space. United is a fascinating company. I mean, this was a company that was founded by Martine Rothblatt. And, you know, she's actually considered one of the most successful transgender business people in America. And she was neither a doctor nor a farmer executive by trade. She actually started out as a lawyer and initially made her fortune in the satellite business. It was one of the founders of Sirius Satellite Radio. But her, uh, her daughter was diagnosed with uh, PH in the 90s. And Martine, you know, kind of took it upon herself to try to find a cure for it. And she basically launched United Therapeutics with the goal of finding a cure for this disease. She hired this PhD named Roger Jeffs to be her chief medical officer. And he went on to become her co-CEO. And what they did is they had, they found this, uh, this, this, this drug that had already uh, kind of been in use uh, called triprostanol, um, which basically is a drug that's a vasodilator that relaxes the pulmonary arteries. And, you know, their goal was to make this the standard of care for, for folks who had moderate to advanced PAH, you know, and improve their quality of life and give them the ability to exercise. So the first drug they got to market was remodulin. It was, you know, the infused form of triprostanol and given intravenously. And it became the standard of care for advanced PAH and, you know, kind of put United on the map. And it's still, even though it's off patent, is still generating $500 million in annual revenue a year. Now, the second big drug was Tyveso, which is the inhaled form of triprostanol. And they do about $500 million annual revenue there. And that actually just got approved for a new indication, which will double their annual revenue to roughly $1 billion by 2024. And that's part of the reason why, why UTHR has, has seen their stock do pretty well the last year. Um, so this $1 billion Tyveso revenue market is the market that Liquidia is basically going to go after. Now, uh, Tyveso currently is administered in a, a nebulizer, which is a bulky device that put on sort of like, it looks like a face mask and you, and you, and you inhale it. Liquidia's a solution to this is to create an, an, uh, an inhaler, which is obviously easier to administer and easier to carry around. But basically, this is, this is the market that Liquidia is going to go after. So the market that Liquidia is targeting is the nebulized Tyveso market where Utrepia as a dry powder inhaler is looking to cannibalize that market. So perhaps explain to us why the dry powder inhaler approach is superior to the nebulizer approach. Yeah. So the way to think about the space going forward is... You know, Tyveso is currently administered in, in this nebulizer product. It's going to, uh, eventually everyone that's using the nebulizers is going to transition to an inhaler. And this is something that, you know, UTHR understands and has, has talked about. Uh, you know, Martine herself has said that this is going to happen. Now, Martine, you know, recognizing this, struck a partnership with a company called Mankind, which is also developing a, an inhaled product. and so they. You know, that's the path that they've chosen to take. 
Liquidia developed their own, uh, you know, they had their own technology called print technology, which allows them to, to have very precise control over the shape and size of drug particles. And they've used that to administer triprostanol through their, their inhaler device. And so they use a reformulated version of triprostanol. And, you know, their goal here is to, to replace Tyveso and become the new standard of care. Some of the advantages that Liquidia's product has is it doesn't have a max dosage. It's easier to administer. It doesn't have any, uh, it doesn't need to be stored a certain way. You know, they basically have a superior, superior mousetrap here. Having no maximum dosage here is, is important. And, you know, the reason why it's important is because, you know, a Tavaso patient can stay on it for, uh, you know, much longer than they would if they had to uh, use a much lower dosage. And the goal here is to prevent, you know, patients from having to switch to the, the infused therapy, which is, you know, much more painful and, and uh, cumbersome to administer. So by having no maximum dosage, that will keep patients on the inhaled therapy for, for a longer period of time. Can you elaborate on why being able to dose at higher levels is such an advantage for Liquidia? And why mankind can't do that? So when you look at their product, they were only able to dose up to 64 micrograms in their pH patients, which was about a third of what Liquidia was able to do with Eutrepia. The reason why they couldn't dose you know, more than that was, for one, Liquidia owns a patent uh, for the inhaled dose range above 100. So they actually can't, can't go above 100 without facing pen you know, potential litigation there. Um, and when they did try to go above hundred, their patients had an uncontrollable cough. So they, they had to be pretty conservative with their, their dosing and their phase through trial. So I think, you know, the dosage issue here is a big issue because again, you know, patients with the higher dosage can stay in the product for a much longer period of time and they don't have to switch to the infused product. I think in the long run, you know, when you look at the history of of pH products, the best product is going to win. Is going to win the day. That was true when you know when UTHR launched uh, the nebulized Tyveso in in two thousand nine. They were able to steal the vast majority of the market away from Actilion, which also had an inhaled product. So I think right now United has you know they're the big gorilla in this space, and they obviously have relationships with all the doctors, but. The reality is, is that Liquidia's product is substantially better because of the maximum dosage issue and also because of storage issues, some other kind of more tangential points. But I think the key reason is the, the, the maximum dosage. You know, we can go into, we'll go into the litigation in a second, but, you know, even if mankind ends up coming to the market first, which isn't by no means guaranteed at this point, given they recently received a CRL, it still seems likely in the long run that Liquidia, given they have the superior mousetrap here, as far as you know, inhaled products go, will will still end up being the the ultimate winner, right? So, mankind united have received a CRL for their dry powder inhaler, and on the flip side, Liquidia now has received FDA approval for Utrepia, but it's a tentative approval. So. Let's dive into why that approval is is tentative and the litigation situation with United. 
Yeah. So as you know, as mentioned, there's there's this massive kind of litigation overhang, which is why the stock hasn't you know really re-rated the way it should. Right now, liquidity is trading for you know less than a tenth of the value of mankind, even though they have again the better mousetrap here, and they should over time win the market. The reason why the approval is tentative is there's an ongoing Hatch-Waxman litigation between Liquidia and United. So the FDA cannot fully approve a drug until the end of the 30-month stay, which is October 2022. So, you know, in roughly 11, 11 10 months from now. So, you know, what, what United did here is, is typical of a big pharma company, which is to, to issue patents that they can try to use for infringement lawsuits to, to stall their competitors. But what we'll see is we'll see this Hatch-Waxman litigation decided in, in Delaware court. And the sort of the first catalyst there will be March of 2022, where there'll be a, a trial. And then you'll get a decision no later than October of 2022. Clearly, you're a believer that Liquidia will prevail in this litigation situation with United. So what gives you such confidence in, the, in a positive outcome for Liquidia? Yeah, I mean, this is obviously where you know most of the work I think it's pretty easy to understand that liquidity has a better product here. It's pretty easy to look at the potential market share capture, and it's pretty easy to understand that you know inhalers will eventually capture all that market. So, the, but the hard part of the the research here and, and where most of the time needs to be spent is understanding the IP litigation and understanding why liquidity should overcome this challenge and having some certainty there. Now, the company really does can't go out. And fully articulate that because you know it just makes sense for them strategically to be a little bit uh, closed off and to to keep things close to their vest. It is no- notable to note, though, that the the general counsel did recently purchase uh, five hundred thousand dollars worth of stock, which is obviously a lot for a, a GC given how much he's currently making. So you are seeing them vote with their wallets, and other insiders have bought stock as well. But let me try to kind of break down the. The, the patent issues here. So they're basically, there are three patents that are owned by United, which they're using to try to stall Liquidia. They're the, uh, the 901, the 793, and the 066 patent. Now, really for all intents and purposes, the 901 and the 793 are, are not really a threat. The PTAB recently instituted an IPR in both those patents and Liquidia has a strong case for invalidity for both of them. So there's a good chance that actually the, the 793 patent is invalidated via the IPR before it even reaches Delaware. The real, the real work here is on the 066 patent. That's kind of the question mark here. Liquidia tried to invalidate that patent via IPR last year, but it didn't work. So they're, you know, the Delaware courts have to decide on the validity of this patent and whether or not, and there's two things they have to decide, whether they, the, the patent is valid and whether Liquidia actually infringes upon it. So you know, what does the 066 patent pertain to? Well, it's a product by process patent which means that it contains a list of claims to describe a process to pure triprostanil. Now, if you know anything about triprostanil, you'll know that it was actually approved for prior pharmaceutical usage in the U.S. several years prior to the creation of this, this 066 patent. You know, this was a drug that already existed that Martin and, uh, and Roger Jeffs took to, to apply to uh, pH. So I think we can surmise that basically... Liquidia uses the older process to, fur- to purify triprostanol. And, you know, one of the things this patent uh, pertains to is basically removing certain salt impurities. And from my understanding, Liquidia keeps sort of trace amounts of those impurities in their, 
in their uh, in their version of triprostanol. So uh, the reality is is that they don't infringe upon that patent. So I think that's that's what this comes down to is that it's going to be almost impossible for United to prove both validity and infringement here. Uh, I think that that it's very clear that that this product you know, that liquidity's product does not infringe on, on United's processes. So the trial starts on March 28th. How long do you think it will take the judge to rule in this case? Uh, or, or in other words, when do you think investors will get clarity as to the outcome of the litigation? So we should definitely know by October. Now, there's a chance that they decide earlier you know, one thing I'm told is that the clerks rotate every August. So there was a clerk that was assigned to this last August. And it's it's possible that they don't want to, you know, have to, to change clerks in the middle of this process. So maybe they, they decide upon it before that clerk rotates. So, you know, before August. But we're going to know before October. And we'll probably, we'll know a lot after the first hearing in March, you know, given how the judge poses questions, et cetera. So I think, you know, the first real catalyst here will be that March hearing. And then we'll know, if, you know, we'll have a lot more certainty in October. But I think you want to own the stock now because, A, it's just incredibly undervalued given, given the, you know, potential uh, addressable market here. I mean, this is a stock that's trading well south of, <clears throat> of $200 million in, in EV. You know, it's trading for like $150 million in EV. And it's... You know, it's got a potential addressable market of be a billion in, in a couple of years where they could be the, you know, one of two or in the dominant position of capturing with just a couple of, of flimsy patents standing between it and that market. And given their potential position there, I think there's some probability that between now and March or after March, you know, between March and October, that you see United come in again and, and look to do a deal here. So as I mentioned earlier, you know, I got interested in this because they, uh, you know, they got this licensing offer that you know, was clearly from United, but they didn't say who it was from last October. And you know, the stock re-rated, but then it fell down again because the licensing offer wasn't, wasn't consummated. Well, I think they're in a much, much stronger position now than they were last October because they have a drug that's been accepted their competitors, uh, you know, product solution partnership, mankind has been CRL. So we're not going to know if that drug is accepted, that device is accepted until, you know, probably later, later this summer. So if you're United Therapeutics, you don't want to split this market with Liquidia, nor do you want to lose this market to Liquidia, which would be even worse. You bet on the wrong horse here. You bet on mankind which again is a product with just worse specs than Liquidity's product, you're better off you know, canceling your partnership with Mankind, which you can do basically. I think it's like you give them 30 days notice and you cancel the partnership and partnering in turn with, with Liquidia and coming up with some sort of agreement either to acquire the technology or, or you know, maybe it's a licensing agreement. But I would think that United is forced to act here at some point Either before March or after March, and if they don't, then you know, liquidity obviously can go it alone, and there will be other potential acquirers down the line. I don't think you're you're buying this because you know you're hoping they get bought out. I just think that's a that's a very real 
possibility here. You're buying this because you're confident they can do it themselves. But to give you some sense as to kind of the value that that United subscribes to this this product category, you know, Martine herself spent $105 million in cash to get a priority voucher that, you know, was designed really to just give their their uh, inhaler product a four-month head start. Now that money ended up going to waste because they got a CRL, but it just tells you how much United cares about owning this market. They spent $105 million just to get a four-month head start. They could launch this product tomorrow if they came to an agreement with Liquidia. So I have to think that they're not stupid, that they're going to consider doing something here. Um, you know, Liquidia has a very smart and commercial board. You know, they, they reconstituted their management team and their board in the last year. You've got uh, Paul Manning and Roger Jeffs, Roger Jeffs obviously being the, the former co-founder of United Therapeutics and Paul Manning being a, a you know, very successful and, and uh, health, healthcare investor who's done a lot of deals like this. And they have a new CEO in who has done other turnaround projects. So I think, you know, they're, they're the sorts of folks that, that, would, that would be willing to kind of come do a deal. At least I imagine they would be, and they've they've got a lot of their own money invested in this. Uh, you know, at prices higher than where we are today, um, the rare gen merger that got Manning and Jeffs involved was done at a six fifty share valuation. They've since put more money in, you know, at, at lower prices. But I think you've got you've got the right commercial interests running this on the liquidity side. And they're gaining kind of more and more sort of uh, poker chips and sort of strategic, a strategic advantage over over their competitors here. And this is too important a market, I think, for for Martine to to ignore Liquidia. But if they don't go that route, you also have Merck and Johnson Johnson, who could be players in this, who are players in the space, who could be potential acquirers of Liquidia. Well, I think you've laid out a pretty compelling rationale for Liquidia having arguably the best inhaled inhaler product, DPI product uh, for PAH. And I think you've also laid out a, a fairly compelling argument as to why United has a vested interest in perhaps doing something with Liquidia um, and arguably has already made overtures towards them with a previous licensing offer. So let's put this all, let's kind of wrap things up now by talking about how the stock behaves through throughout 2022. You know, the upside scenario, you know, I'm curious to hear what you think the the upside would be under a circumstance where, you know, either Liquidia is successful in the litigation or arguably perhaps does a deal on the courtroom steps with United. And then on the downside, you know, what what investors can have for downside protection. We haven't talked a lot about the rare gen uh, deal from 2020, but there is a commercial asset that came with that that is, you know, uh, has, you know, has some revenue, you know, cash on the balance sheet um, platform, you know, what, you know, maybe you can sort of elucidate what you think the upside scenario for Liquidia is in 2022 and what the downside scenario is. Sure. So I think there's a near-term upside, and then maybe there's a longer-term upside. The near-term upside would be like you know a pre, a pre uh, sort of court ruling decision where they get bought out by call United Therapeutics. 
And I think these guys would do that maybe for like 12 to $15 a share, which, you know, it's obviously much higher than where, where the thing is trading today. But if you consider the fact that this inhaled pH market is supposed to be about a billion in 2023, these guys mean that they just got to 10% of it, that would be hundred million of annual revenue. So at $12 a share, that's, that's six X forward revenue, which again is not a heroic multiple. And there's a chance they get much more than 10% of that market over time. But I think as a strategic asset, it makes a lot of sense for United Therapeutics to not want this to, to compete with their, you know, their franchise. If they did win the litigation, so say call it post the Hatch-Waxman uh, deadline. So if, they, if they, they won on the 066 and, you know, they start to launch the product and they get meaningful adoption, then you know, you could get a much higher price from a J&J or a Merck, um, or, you know, you could just value this up, you know, sort of future discounted cash flows as this becomes a viable standalone company. So, you know, that scenario would be like 15 to 20 times or 15 to $20 or, or perhaps higher. So that's, that's, those are the sort of the two upsides that are possible. On the downside, you know, even if they lost the patent litigation, they could still do call it 30 million in net revenue next year with their generic remodulant product. It's not a blockbuster, but it's it's steady cash flow. So, you know, that's probably worth three dollars a share. And they also have this print technology, which you know the FDA just approved, and that could be used as a platform to reformulate all sorts of other novel therapies, you know, both branded and generic. So I think just having that FDA approval really de-risked de-risk the name because the, you know they can they can always sell that print technology to somebody else and now they have they have a therapy here that can really be brought to market post uh you know this this Hatch-Waxman uh litigation so i really i feel like the downside here is in, incredibly uh protected um and you've got a bunch of different routes to to seeing a double or a triple really in the next in the next year to me that's a very compelling risk reward that was created by, again, a bunch of sort of technical and behavioral factors that drove this stock to be incredibly dislocated. Great. Well, you've given us a ton to think about with regards to Liquidia, and unquestionably, it's going to be a topical name in 2022. But let's now transition to the the second name we were planning on talking about, which is ProQR. And it too should be a very topical name in 2022. But you know, arguably for a very different reason, uh, and one that I would say is a more traditional uh, biotech reason, which is top-line clinical data. So they've got a, uh, a late-stage asset in Cepofarsin for a ultra-rare eye disease, LCA10. Clearly, uh, we're talking about this because you you have a certain amount of conviction in a positive outcome from these these impending uh, phase two, three data, which I think we're going to see early here in 2022. So can you elaborate on why you like ProQR and why you like this LCA10 opportunity? Sure. So let me actually just take a step back and explain, you know, kind of how I got interested in the space. I actually, growing up, I had a cousin of mine who um, had trouble seeing at night. And I remember playing basketball with him on New Year's Eve, you know, back in like the 90s. And throwing him the ball, and he, he literally couldn't couldn't catch it. And it turned out, when he was a young kid, then it, it turned out that he was suffering from a, a rare genetic eye disease. 
And the disease, you know, it started with night blindness where you basically can't see at night and then you progress to losing your peripheral vision and then eventually you, you lose all vision. And obviously this is happening because his genes weren't coding for a certain protein and, um, you know, he was losing, losing his receptors, et cetera. So yeah, I've been following this space uh, somewhat tangentially given, given my cousin's situation. And there've been a few broad approaches to, to, to tackling this, you know, this, this protein issue. One has obviously been gene therapy and, you know, more recently CRISPR. And the other is call it modifying RNA. And this is where PRQR is focused on. The problem with PRQR is the, the other, the, four, the other spaces, gene therapy and CRISPR have just been the hotter investor spaces and people have ignored the, the RNA translation, mRNA translation space. So I think that's part of what's caused the disconnect here for the stock is that it doesn't really fall in kind of the broader thematic categories that people are uh, favoring at the moment. Uh, and they've been quietly building a lot of compelling data for sort of their first three indications in the eye. So they've had, they've had phase one, two data out for LCA10 ushers and ADRP and sort of the first big pivotal data is going to come out on ACL10, which is a, a rare genetic disease within the, it's called the Leber's gingivitis uh, eye disease category, which is a pretty rapid uh, eye loss disease. Um, and it affects about 2000 patients. And, you know, these are therapies that would cost 400 to $600,000 a year. So you're looking at, you know, a potential peak revenue of 400 to 500 million you know, this would be that kind of a, of a therapy. You know, this is a big market and they are the most advanced and will be the first to come out with pivotal data, which will come out in late March. And I think will be the start of, of a massive re-rating in this name, which has been up until now basically ignored. But following that readout, they're going to have trial that will start it in Usher's and, you know, they, they'll be advancing their, their third indication, ADRP, uh, as well. The ushers is an even bigger market, you know, likely represents north of $2 billion a year in peak revenue. So they've got, you know, a couple of indications here that are fairly advanced, you know, with big peak revenue addressable markets, and they'll be the first to market in these. And this is a company that's trading with, call it sub $400 million in EV, about $200 million a little under 200 million in cash. Uh, so they've got a long runway as far as cash, cash burn is concerned. And a number of catalysts that are about to read out. So I think in the near term, you know, this, this is a compelling story because of the Illuminate data readout for LCA 10 this coming late March. And what you're going to see there is primary endpoint uh, for change in, in BCVA, which is like a vision measurement at 12 months and they'll run it with three different treatment arms. And what we've seen so far has been clinically meaningful uh, benefit at 12 months for, you know, the best corrected visual acuity metric, the BCBA metric, you know, well past what, what we think would be needed for, for an approval. And that's occurred in both sort of the different genetic phenotypes of the disease. So it, it seems like we're setting up here for another, another potential successful readout. And I think the read on there will be that they have the ability to, to kind of achieve similar success in these other indications, which again, have 
very large adjustable markets. Sure. And success in LCA 10 is arguably platform validating. Um, but we do have some competition here from a, a notable company, Editas, which also recently had some data in LCA 10. Can you elaborate on, on how their data look relative to uh, ProQR? Yeah. So Editas had a big readout earlier this year. Uh, and the reality is, is that, that I think PRQR crushed them. You know, PRQR, their, their therapy called Cepafarsin, you know, it showed it showed a, an effect within three months and, you know, clear and consistent benefit across, you know, a variety of clinical endpoints, not just BCVA, but also field stimulus and mobility and a few other ones. Editas reported efficacy data for, for five patients with about three months of follow-up, and they saw limited and pretty variable responses across these same clinical measures. So, like maybe two of the, the mid-dose patients uh, saw some efficacy signals, but it was pretty limited. So it's really, the jury's still out as to whether or not it's efficacious. And the safety data looked, looked okay, but there was some pain associated with, with the surgical procedure. And there was uh, so, some inflammation as well, which you know, could, could cause doctors to, to consider, to reconsider this as a therapy. So I think, you know, in the head-to-head contest between PRQR and Editas, I think PRQR is, is absolutely crushing them. And I think that was arguably an overhang on the stock because you could look at PRQR maybe having the best mousetrap, but if, if the drug was only going to be on the market for a couple of years before you know, gene therapy or CRISPR solution overtook it, then, you know, you're not going to necessarily give ProQR the, 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 the multiple that it might otherwise get. But I think so far, that doesn't seem to be, you know, a possibility or given, given where Editas is at at the moment. Maybe now we can discuss the the platform as a tool to do business development. This RNA editing platform clearly has appeal to larger partners. We've seen deals recently from Lilly, who put $50 million up front for five targets uh, outside of the eye. Uh, we've seen previous deals with Yarrow, which is an RTW-backed company. So do you think this is something we're going to see more of from ProQR, more business development deals? Yeah, I think these deals kind of confirm that they have a compelling platform here. The fact that they were able to do a deal with Eli Lilly, um, you know, that basically uses our RNA editing platform to look at other, again, non, non-eye disease ailments in the liver and central nervous system. You know, so I think... PRQR is a bet that basically this RNA editing technology, which has been ignored by the market, you know, it'll have a place going forward, um, especially some of these CRISPR and DNA technologies just are immature or don't work. So they also have Trident, which is another platform editing technology, which I think they can probably strike a partnership with, with someone else. So, you know, we could see a, a deal for, uh, for Trident too as well. But I think you know, striking both of those partnership deals, I think, offers more confirmation here that, that you know, this is really be- going to become a platform technology company, you know, first, obviously, in the rare eye disease space, but perhaps eventually in some of these other areas. Let's 
conclude our conversation around ProQR in a similar manner to how we ended Liquidia, and, and that is around the upside potential for the stock in 2022 and, and also what the downside might look like. Can you elaborate on your thoughts on, on sort of upside, downside scenarios here for uh, ProQR in 2022? Yeah, no, it's a great, a great question here. I mean, they've got about $175 million in cash at the moment. Um, so with about 71 million in shares outstanding. So, you know, call that a little under $3 in, in cash. Uh, and the stock is trading for, uh, you know, somewhere in the sevens right now. And they have, you know, these sort of these two call options on these, 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 these platform programs, you know, where, where someone else is, you know, where they're licensing their technology to somebody else. So let's say that they, none of these eye indications work. I still think this is probably worth, you know, three to four dollars a share, or somewhere in in that range, uh, at least in the near term. Going into this Illuminate readout, you know, that's where I think the the, the story really starts to work. Uh, if they can if they can show a real positive sort of pivotal readout there, then I think the stock could really re-rate to, you know, twenty dollars or higher as people start to put together, you know, the the potential TAM for that indication and obviously do the positive read through to the other indications. But I think, I think, I think the stock will rally into that readout. I don't think it's going to be sitting around in the sevens. I think it'll be, you know, above 10 by the time we get to March and a successful readout there would, would lead to the stock being up into the the twenties. Now, obviously I think that the biotech space in general over the last year is just the small cap biotech space has just been a, a, a bad place to to invest. It's just you know you've had uh, a lot of companies have had good news and not seen the stocks really re-rate. But I think this is one where you know the company's really built a lot of a wealth of good positive updates and hasn't hasn't re-rated. I think it's going to take this this final pivotal readout to really get people's attention to the story here and the fact that they have a platform and rare genetic eye diseases um, that could obviously extend into other other therapeutic areas as well. So I think, you know, you could easily see mid to high 20s after that readout. I'm glad that you highlighted how challenging the biotech environment for investors has been in 2021. Um, I know you're not exclusively focused on biotech and, and your numbers obviously reflect that, but, you know, certainly it's been a very, very challenging year, especially for the micro small cap biotech investor. Let's hope that 2022, you know, we refresh and start anew and investors gravitate back towards the space. And I think you've given us a couple names, which is exactly what you know our, our audience is looking for. Actionable companies with clear catalysts, you know, upcoming. So I really want to thank you for bringing both Liquidia and ProQR to our attention. I think they're both excellent names with a lot of merit in both of them and you've uh, you know laid out a very compelling investment thesis on both any any further thoughts on either company before we say goodbye i wouldn't be coming forward in the sort of public manner on on two names like this which obviously you know have very sort of what i think are very skewed risk reward profiles unless i was pretty confident that i'm not going to look stupid in in four to five months here but you know regardless there's going to be an outcome here by by April, May for certainly for PRQR and uh, certainly by the fall for Liquidia. So I will either be very right or very wrong.
And that's why we love healthcare investing, because we have these these catalysts, these galvanizing moments where we're either proven right and we get multi-bagger potential or we're wrong and we're humbled. And, you know, I think you've given us two names that have, you know, a lot of compelling reasons to to pay attention to in 2022, both have these galvanizing moments on the horizon. So we're very much looking forward to following them. We'll certainly be actively talking about them. And uh, I want to thank you for the time you've given us and also all the thought you put into, you know, both of these companies and your willingness to share that with us and our audience. So thank you, Brian, and uh, look forward to uh, staying in touch. Cool. Well, thank you. A few final thoughts after my interview with Brian Finn. I'll start first with ProQR. And I think Brian's laid out a, a really good investment thesis around this name. You know, I think there's reason to be optimistic and a positive outcome for Sepofarsin in this rare genetic eye indication, LCA10. It's encouraging to know that their main competitor, Editas, has experienced a setback such that ProQR appears to have the market wide open for them at this stage. You know, the broader question for me is how will the biotech markets behave when these data are, are being delivered? You know, generally speaking, when you've got a, a company with a strong balance sheet, a you know provocative asset with good proof of concept data, going into a orphan indication with no other products approved, you know, generally speaking, stocks would run into that sort of into this data readout. But we're not living during normal markets. So I think a lot of my thoughts around ProQR are attached to the broader biotech market and whether or not there is a renewed enthusiasm in this space once we maybe flip the calendar from 2021 to 2022. Turning now to Liquidia, this one has really caught my attention. And and perhaps it's because I've had some success investing in healthcare litigation stories in the past. I, I was an investor in TechMira while they battled El Nylum on trade secret litigation around their lipid nanoparticle technology. And that turned out quite well uh, as a TechMira investor. And I guess in retrospect, it turned out way better for Al Nylum, frankly, but I won't belabor the frustration of all TechMira are viewed as shareholders over the past decade. Uh, but now going back to Liquidia, the history here with United is quite fascinating. You know, uh, Brian actually has an old Seeking Alpha article. If you care to look back at, I think it was published in November of 2020. At that point, they had received their unsolicited licensing offer, which we again assume was United. And they declined to take that offer, instead merged with RareGen, bringing in this generic remodulin and bringing in these ex-United folks, this Roger Jeffs, and from there, United goes on the, the war path as far as their development of their dry powder inhaler. And as Brian highlights, they go out and they buy this uh, priority review voucher and put their foot on the gas to try and beat Liquidia to the market, only to get CRL'd not long ago. So. I, I can't help but think that United is still in the, you know, in the weeds waiting to make a move here on Liquidia. It's it's fascinating. It really is fascinating. I, I think I think Brian's laid out a really good argument on why Liquidia has the better mousetrap, as he would say. And he's also laid out a good argument as to why they should win in this litigation process with United. But in the back of my mind, I keep on thinking that United 
you're still motivated to try to do something, as I would say, on the courtroom steps. So definitely a fun one to watch. I look forward to watching this one play out in the coming uh, weeks and months. I want to thank Brian again for bringing these two fantastic ideas to to our attention. I hope our audience enjoyed it. I want to emphasize again that this interview, that these podcasts are for entertainment purposes only. These are not to be considered investment advice. Please do speak to an investment advisor before you make any investment decisions in any of the securities we've just discussed. Thank you to our audience, and I look forward to speaking to you again in a few weeks. 